Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Patricia L. Hudson, author of Traces, a novel. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Can you start by saying a few words about yourself and how you started this project? Well, I have spent the last few decades as a freelance writer. Um, Prior to that, I was a university reference librarian. And um, a a childhood trip to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, sparked my interest in American colonial history. And it was an interest I never really lost. Eventually, I got a a bachelor's in um, history. And... um, In 1996, I was uh, just browsing in a bookstore and happened upon a biography of of Daniel Boone, took it home and kind of went down a rabbit hole because um, the the thing that interested me the most uh, wasn't Boone, but rather the the women that were mentioned occasionally in in this biography. And I really wanted to know more about them. Tell us about your writing process, your research. Well, you know, it's interesting. I I don't know that I'd ever really sat down and thought about it until recently uh, about my process per se, but I realize it's it's kind of a combination of three major phases of of my life and my career. Uh, Getting the history degree, which kind of led to the subject matter that I'm interested in. Uh, My training as a university reference librarian that taught me research skills and uh, attention to detail. And then finally, uh, my work as a journalist, because it uh, gave me a lot of, of practice in seeing the arc of a story. Tell us about life for a woman during the bone women's time. Well, women on the frontier, um, this was the, the period of time the book takes place is from 1760 to uh, the begin, the really end of the 18th century. And uh, it was just unremitting toil. Um, it's astonishing that that so anybody really survived that time period, but the women in particular, because uh, not only was uh, their work, their daily work, extremely physical, but for the much of their adult lives, they were pregnant or nursing or caring for a large, large brood of children. So it was a very, very, very tough life. Moving and having babies, Tell us about Rebecca and Daniel. Well, Rebecca uh, was married when she married Daniel. She probably knew that he he wanted to make his living as what was known as a long hunter. 
uh, long hunters would go out into the wilderness for sometimes years at a time, um, hunting and trapping, and they made their living through the fur industry, which was a, a pretty lucrative way actually to, to make your living at the time. But of course, it left the families back uh, in the settlement somewhere uh, without the support of, of the of the father and or the husband, and and so. Uh, life for any woman in the 18th century was not easy, but uh, life for someone like Rebecca was even harder than, than average. In your book, you mentioned that Rebecca wanted her husband to be something he couldn't be. How commonly do you think that was during that time period? You know, I think it's it's kind of a human nature in almost any time period uh, among a, a lot of couples. Couples don't always see eye to eye on things. And uh you know, for for her, I think um, not only did he was he gone a lot, but he continually his his need to explore and to uh, continue to push westward uh, put her children in danger, and I'm sure that that was just excruciating for her as a mother. Um, you know, any mother wants to protect their children as best they can, but when your husband is intent on continually pushing the boundaries uh, of where safety actually resides, then uh, that had to be an ongoing um, struggle between the two of them. Reading and gender, another theme in your book, who was more likely to be able to read during that time period? And what does that tell us about society? Well, um, reading, the literacy rates in colonial America really varied a lot from um, both male and female, but also just from colony to colony. Uh, The New England states had the uh, highest level of literacy, and a lot of that was due to to the settlement, uh, the way that uh, uh, the settlement happened in New England. It was sort of structured around a village, a, a lot like it was in England. And so there were opportunities for schools to be founded within a village structure. And in the South, the Mid-Atlantic and the South, that was not so much the case um, because of the crops that were grown, tobacco and, and uh, in South Carolina rice and indigo, those things, they, they tended to, people tended to settle in, um, in kind of, uh, what would I say, they, they spread out a lot more because of the uh, need to have a lot of land to produce the crops that, that were, were valuable from, from the, that area. And so people didn't have as much of an opportunity to go to school, either men or women. Um, but by far, men had more opportunities than women did. And by the close of the 18th century, around the time that uh, clon- colonialism had ended and America was beginning uh, as a country, about 70% or so of the men in the South could read, but only 40 to 50% of the women. Another theme in your book was about the winters without help, the winters alone. Tell us about that. Well, you can imagine being um, a, a woman with anywhere from, you know, well, two, <laughs> three, ten children to take care of um, and, and being so isolated as these women were on, on the frontier. They really had nobody else to depend on other than themselves. And the winters, of course, are particularly fraught because um, with scattered settlements, travel's harder. 
Um, so uh, the isolation would have been pretty intense in, in many of these uh, remote frontier areas. And women, of course, um, you know, like any, any other t- time period, had to deal with sick children uh, with no doctors around. They, um, I, I just I can't really even imagine how many of them managed at all. Jealousy. Tell us about Martha and the jealousy. Well, it was interesting. Rebecca and Daniel, um, Daniel's, um, uh, uh, Rebecca's sister Martha was married to Daniel's brother, Edward, who the family called Ned. So you had what was what's fairly common uh, in scattered settlements. You, you married the people that were of approximately your age within the community. And so there were a lot of a lot of marriages uh, between families like this. And, and in the instance of, of Daniel and Rebecca and Martha and Ned, um, Ned was, by all indications, very content to farm. He, he didn't have the wanderlust that Daniel had. And so here was Rebecca um, seeing her sister have a much easier, more settled life while her life continued to be a, a struggle. Um. During one of the scenes, you talk about the fact that they only have children to talk to. Yeah, I think any any mother who's been a stay-at-home mother with young children <laughs> can understand that at some point you just desperately want to have an actual conversation with somebody else who uh, would understand what you're thinking and feeling. And so at, at different times in the book, I tried to sort of stress how the isolation would affect a woman, a woman's emotions and and her ability to cope. And I, uh, you know, there's there are many times when uh, she opens her cabin door and just wants to see smoke rising from somebody else's chimney, no matter how how far away it might be, just just to feel like she's not the last person left on earth, or at least the last adult left on earth. The, the second part of your book, you focus on three women close to Daniel Boone. Why did you take that path? Well, when I, you know, I originally thought I would write just about Rebecca, but the more research I did, I, I realized that the each of she and her two oldest daughters had very different experiences uh, on the frontier, and I thought it helped tell a, a, a broader, more complete picture of what life would be like for women uh, at, uh, in that time period. And um, so I, I really felt like all three voices needed to needed to be heard. Can you give the listeners some examples of those voices? Yes. Um, would you like me to do just a, a brief reading? Yes, that would be great. Okay. So this is the beginning of um, the third chapter where Rebecca um, has been uprooted from her community of women and is um, living in in a more isolated space than she wanted to be uh, and realizing that Daniel is restless and is probably not going to stay with them. Um, One morning, not long after their arrival in Culpeper, Rebecca woke before sunrise with her stomach churning. She slipped off the pallet, pulled on her cloak, and felt her way outside the cabin, then ran her hand along the rough log wall that led to the necessary. 
She sat in the dark confines, retching and shivering. By the time she made her way back to the cabin, the sun was just breaking over the horizon, bathing the bare limbs of the apple trees that marched in rows across the hillside in pink-hued light. She climbed the rickety porch steps and leaned on the railing to catch her breath. The Boone family friends who had taken them in had offered them the use of this tenant cabin, but despite the aura of friendship that surrounded the arrangement, it was clear they were expected to work the surrounding fields, just as any other tenant would. Rebecca turned her back on the first rays of light that shone above the orchard, crossed the porch, and eased open the cabin door, hoping the rusty hinges wouldn't squeak. The interior of the cabin was beginning to grow lighter. When she lay back down beside Daniel, chilled to the bone, he opened his eyes and looked at her quizzically. I'm expecting, she said. When? The look on his face told her this was unwelcome news. Late October, maybe early November, she tugged on the blanket and turned her back to him to hide the tears that pricked her eyelids. The first two times she told him she was pregnant, his response had been to lift her in his arms and whirl her joyfully around the room. Now she lay stiffly in the dark, her mind racing. After a bit, Daniel slid across the pallet and spooned his body against her back, draping his arm over her side so he could rest a hand on her stomach. He let out a long sigh. You know I love young and Becca, but another mouth to feed. His voice trailed off, and that was all he said. As Daniel began to breathe deeply, his arm heavy on her side, she lay awake listening to the rustle of the boys as they shifted in their blankets. She watched a shaft of light trace a slow course across the cabin wall, and a girlhood memory came to mind. Time her brothers had found a crow with a damaged wing. She'd watched as they fashioned a cage and carved a splint and helped them scour the barnyard for worms to feed the glossy bird. The injury healed nicely, yet one morning they'd found him lying stiff and glassy-eyed. Wild things can't be caged, her father had told them. Rebecca shifted uneasily as she realized the expression she'd seen on her husband's face in the thin morning light was a look of a wild thing, desperate to make his escape. You took us there. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. What was the agreement between Rebecca and Dan? Well, I think uh, at, at one point in their marriage, they came to kind of an equilibrium that can happen with couples when um, both sides have seen that the other side is not happy with the, the, uh, the situation and they kind of work things out. But uh, that equilibrium, I think, was um, upset when a man named John Finley showed up at the Boone cabin and told Daniel about Kentucky. And suddenly Daniel had this itch to explore even further into the mountains than he had before. And so the equilibrium of Rebecca gaining the skills to keep the family uh, and the children in particular safe for, and fed and clothed for a portion of the year and, and the agreement that Daniel had, had uh, agreed to stay home more and to really pay attention to the farming when he was home. I think that that equilibrium was upset. And then Daniel does leave the family and heads off to Kentucky. Children getting older, helping with Rebecca. Tell us about that. Well, um, Daniel and Rebecca took in two of Daniel's nephews who had been orphaned, uh, even when Daniel and Rebecca were newlyweds. And um, it was a wonderful thing to do. The boys were, um, I think, seven and five or so at the time that, that, that uh, Daniel and Rebecca adopted them. 
Uh, then Rebecca went on eventually to have 10 children of her own. But um, the fact that these two boys, uh, who were older than the couple's children, were around uh, to help Rebecca, I think probably made it easier for Daniel to, to go. Uh, the, the nephews uh, lived with the family um, up until they were in their early 20s. And uh, so it was like having you know, to two family members who could do some, take over some of the men's work. Uh, that made it easier, but I'm sure it's still, oh, it was difficult. Uh, no matter, no matter how many hands you had on the farm or on a settlement, you, you had more than any, anybody could do. Native American raids. Tell us about how you put that into the story. You know, it's a hard it's a hard thing uh, to write about the 18th century from the 21st century, because we know now, uh, when we look at that time period, the whole idea that settlers could move into native land and just take it over just because they wanted to is, is pretty abhorrent to us at this point. But of course, this book is told through the eyes of three white women of that time period. So it was this very delicate balance of trying to uh, give glimpses of some of the Native Americans and their feelings while also uh, helping the reader understand the dangers and and the feelings of of the white women. And so I I tried very carefully to to walk this fine line between making it look totally one-sided or uh, or or being um, ahistorical if I if I went too far in the native uh, you know the Native American uh, you know uh, mind thought and stuff thank you jobs that the women had during this time period can you give us a glimpse of those jobs oh boy um, if you think about it in a frontier settlement where you are not you can't really trade easily, maybe once a year, maybe uh, twice a year, you might be able to make it to an area where you could actually trade the things that you were raising. So for the most part, you had to be self-sufficient. So these women had to clothe, you know, make all of the the cloth uh, from scratch, you know, shear the sheep, uh, you know, spin spin the wool, everything from scratch. And they were doing it for... I mean, you know, anywhere, like I say, uh, Rebecca had 10 children of her own, but she took in not only these two nephews early on, but later took in six more. So, I mean, I couldn't even depict that in the novel because it just would have been way too many, way too many children to keep track of. So, so even just keeping children clothed would have been difficult. But then when you think about all the food had to be raised uh, butchered, uh, all the soap had to be made uh, on their own. Um, I mean, it was just absolute backbreaking work. Dolly and Susanna, another important part of your book. Tell us about that relationship. Well, Susanna was Rebecca's oldest daughter. Um, she and Dolly, uh, an enslaved woman, were two women that were on the original expedition into Kentucky to cut what became known as the Wilderness Road. It was originally known as Boone's Trace. And um, they were never really celebrated or given their due 
we know uh, just from a little snippet in a diary that was kept that there was an enslaved woman along on this trip. And we know from um, an interview that was done with uh, Daniel and Rebecca's youngest son, Nathan, that his sister, Susanna, was on the trip. And so uh, putting those two things together, these were the only women that were along. And they were expected to, to cook and, and do all of the, the, the that sort of drudgery while the men cut the road. Susanna would have been very young. She married at not quite 15 and had just married when, when she and her husband went on this, this trek into Kentucky. And so I, I couldn't help but believe that uh, Dolly and Susanna would have really kind of clung to each other and, and, and been there for each other because uh, being in the midst of you know, three dozen men in the backcountry, they would have had to really de- have depended on each other. Another theme you had in your book was domestic violence. Yes, unfortunately, uh, Susanna was in a, a marriage that uh, she was physically abused. Um, domestic violence was um, part of the culture then, just unfortunately as it, it remains so today. And uh, But in that time period, a divorce was uh, almost never uh, available to women that were in, a, in a, an abusive relationship. And, and it's hard to imagine how, how little agency a woman in that time period would have if uh, once a woman married, any woman married, um, the idea of coverture, which was a legal term which meant uh, the wife had no legal identity anymore. Coverture meant that everything belonged to the husband, and that actually included the children. So if, uh, if a wife felt like she could not stay in a marriage, it would almost certainly mean she'd lose her children. Um, it, was, it was just a, a very hard, it was a hard thing to write to know that this woman was trapped, uh, Susanna, the way she was. Another uh, aspect of your book, you talked about the captive, um, captivity by the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting there. Well, both Daniel and um, Jemima were at um, some points in time uh, captives, made captive by the Shawnee. Um, and it was interesting, both Jemima and Daniel seemed to have uh, an affinity for the Native Americans. Daniel really admired their lifestyle. Um, I think he, he saw... Uh, he, it kind of suited him. They were they were um, primarily uh, the men hunted, and that was, of course, what he wanted to do. The women, the Native American women, were the ones that were in charge of farming. I think he thought that was a pretty ideal ideal way to live. Uh, Jemima was kidnapped, but from the records, it was very clear that she did not um, hold a grudge, or she didn't. She was not fearful, really, about uh, the Native Americans after that experience, and in fact. One of the records she was quoted as saying, they treated us as kindly as it was possible. And, um, and later on in life uh, in, in Missouri, some of the Shawnee who had been pushed out of Kentucky and Ohio um, were friends with the Boone family. Uh, Daniel had lifelong friends uh, with some of the Shawnee that had been, technically had been his captors. So there was, a, there was an affinity between, between the family and, uh, and some of the tribe members. 
What is the message you want to leave the reader with once they finish your book? Well, several things, I guess. And I think it's appropriate uh, that in in March, Women's History Month, um, that we recognize in ways that we have really not done to a sufficient degree that the women's stories have been neglected and they need to be told. And with so many women's stories, um, honestly, if I had been able to find enough material about the Boone women in uh, the historical record, I probably would have written a straight biography. Um, but because I couldn't find enough material, any, anything that I wanted to write about them pretty quickly turned into just another biography of Daniel, because that's where the historic records take you. And you had to look for the women in between the lines, as, as I call it. So I want to see a lot of these neglected stories brought to the fore, even if it has to be done as, as fiction. You know, you include as much historical accuracy as you possibly can. And then um, I think it's important to let these women have a voice, even if it's a fictional voice. And then the other thing that I, I really would like people to come away with is that it's not just the women's voices who have been neglected. It's the enslaved people's um, voices. It's the Native American voices. And I think we need to uh, continue as a country to realize that until we tell the, the entire picture or give, give our, our children and our students uh, a full picture of what was going on in this country and all of these voices are, are heard, we're, uh, we're really limiting, um, we're limiting ourselves in ways that we shouldn't. And I hope people will, will read the novel and, and be looking for those voices, those uh, unheralded and unheard voices. Now, can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Well, it'll be another forgotten woman. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm not going to divulge too much about it. It's still in the very early stages. I don't know how, um, how other writers feel, but for me, it's interesting. If I talk too much about a project that's, you know, that's in process, it's almost like um, it, it's so much easier to talk about a, a, a project than to sit and actually force yourself to sit down and write it. And if I talk about it, it's kind of like a pressure cooker. If it, you know, you let off the steam if you talk about it too much and then you don't have the impetus to, to write. So, but I will tell you, it will be another forgotten woman and it will be um, in colonial history. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. And again, thank you for being on the program. And we have been talking with Patricia L. Hudson, the author of Traces, a novel. Thank you. Thank you.